0: the last in our four-part series that we've been working through over the last several weeks um, that we've entitled Bad Religion and looking at this idea of how and what happens when, when good religion, when the religion of God begins to add in all of this non-biblical and extra-biblical stuff. When we start weaving in and braiding in to our faith, uh, maybe cultural norms, cultural assumptions. Uh, legalism, self-righteousness. The first week we looked at the, uh, the prophet Amos and what Amos had to say to the people of his day. And, and what, the, what we took away from that was that God doesn't care about our performance. He doesn't care about, about what, we're, what we're doing if, if our heart is not inclined toward Him. That all we can worship in all of the most perfect and most excellent of ways, but unless our heart is inclined toward God, he does not desire our worship. In week two, we looked at Jeremiah and Jeremiah addressing the people of his day, in particular addressing the court prophets, these, these prophets that, that resided in the court of the king that gave easy prophecy, gave told the people what they wanted to hear instead of giving to them the the hard truths of God. Last week we moved into the New Testament and we saw Jesus in this sort of conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes. As Jesus gives Woes, three woes to the Pharisees and three woes to the scribes. These scribes and Pharisees who wanted it to be about how awesome they were instead of how truly awesome God is. You know, we looked last week and we finished last week with this idea that, that we don't dilute the gospel message by letting people see us struggle. That in fact, by letting people see us struggle, by not trying to appear perfect, we more clearly glorify God as we recognize and proclaim our continual need for His work in our lives. You know, we've all seen examples, maybe lived through examples of bad religion. We know they exist because we see them in the world around us, unfortunately. Today, however, we're not going to look at bad religion. We're going to look at the epistle of James, and we're going to see what James says about good religion. What, now that we've received these warnings, what does good religion look like? And so we are in the book of James, we're in the book of James, we're in the first chapter. For those of you maybe who have a hard time finding James, it's right after Hebrews, it's very close to the end of the New Testament. And will you stand with me as we read the Word of God together? Dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he is. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress, and to keep one's self unstained from the world. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we continue our worship this morning through the study of Your Word, I just pray that you would, you would open it up to us. Help us to hear it. Help us to internalize it. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts are acceptable to You, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So I am went back and looked, and unless I missed something, I am pretty sure this is the first time, at least here, that I have preached from the book of James. So we haven't talked about the book of James, and you haven't, haven't gotten sort of my, my introduction to it. So we're going to start this morning just asking ourselves two questions. First of all, who is James, and when was the book of James written? And these are important as we talk about... Every time we sort of do some of this context work, this is important because it helps us understand what the author, in this case James, what's the the, the situation that he's writing into, and that can help us understand the word more clearly. So in the New Testament, there are four Jameses. Now, interestingly, in this book, all it says, all the author does is refer to himself as James. He doesn't give any other identifying characteristics. But there are only four Jameses mentioned in the New Testament, and there are only two of them that have the the apostolic credentials to write something that would be included in Scripture. That's one of the requirements of the New Testament, is that it be written, have an apostolic author. So an apostle is someone who experienced the resurrected Jesus. So those two James are James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' original twelve disciples, and also James, the brother of Jesus. Now, we're pretty sure that it's not James, the son of Zebedee, because his martyrdom came so early in the history of the church that it's unlikely that he would have had the time to write to a church that was as organized and as extant as the letter of James seems to indicate. So that leaves us with James, the brother of Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus' brother James is an early leader in the church in Jerusalem. We think that he may have been a younger brother of Jesus, a a, a son that that, that Mary and Joseph had after Jesus' birth. We also know that he was not a believer during Jesus' ministry on earth, that he, in fact, several times tried to get his brother to shut up. But we also know that he was converted with this, Paul tells us in Corinthians, that he was converted with this post-resurrection encounter with Jesus. So I want us to stop for a second and think, if, if that is the author of the book of James, and, and church tradition and history and scholarship points to the fact that it is, what this means is that the, the man who has just who wrote the words that we have just read, be doers of the word and not hearers only, was a man who in the lifetime of Jesus was a hearer of the word and not a doer. Was a man who in the lifetime of of Jesus, the Messiah, his brother, his half-brother, was a hearer of the word, he heard his brother, but was not a follower, was not a disciple. Okay, so when? When was the book of... James written. So we know that all of the New Testament canon probably written somewhere between the year 33 AD when Jesus was crucified and resurrected and probably about the year 90 which was about the time that the book of Revelation was written. So sometime in those 60, almost 60 years. But if we if we want to think about it we look to this, this first verse of James and it And it begins to give us some ideas. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. So this is what we call a general epistle. It wasn't written to a particular person or a particular church. It was written to the church as a whole, the big church. That's what James is doing here. But in this, in this, to the 12 tribes dispersed, we begin to have an idea about when this may have been written. Remember, as I said, James was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And around the year, in the, in the, in the early 40s, We're not entirely sure exactly when, but in the early 40s, the church was pushed out of Jerusalem. The church was scattered, just as the 12 tribes of God had been scattered from the land by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And so as, as James says to the 12 tribes dispersed, he's, he's telling us that he's making reference to the fact that the, the, the church that he was in charge of, the church in Jerusalem, has gone out into the world. There's some other indications that the 40s are a likely date uh, for this letter. There's a, a seeming conflict, and this has been noticed before. In fact, during the Reformation, Luther was not sure what to do with the book of James because it seemed to contradict so clearly Paul's theology of salvation by faith alone. Now, Luther was working off an assumption that James was written after Paul. But if we understand that maybe James is written before some of Paul's writings, and what we know from Paul's own writings is that there were people who misunderstood Paul's teaching Of salvation by faith alone. We see that this isn't a conflict, but a misunderstanding that's based on certain people who've heard what Paul has taught and sort of twisted it and turned it into this licentious ability that I can do whatever I want. And we know from scripture that James and Paul met in about AD 48, sort of hashed out their differences, come to an understanding of what's happening, and that does not appear to be present. In this book. There also doesn't, James never, never talks to the controversy that emerges, and again in about the year 47 or 48, about the status of the law in the life of the believers as more and more Gentiles came to the faith. So we can take all of this information and think that the book of James was probably written sometime in the early to mid-40s which would make it one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. James is writing to a group of believers who are maybe 10 years removed from the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's writing to a group of people who are still working to figure out what it means to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus, of a resurrected God. And that's why so much of James' advice, I think, can feel so practical. Because he's writing to a people who need practicality. They're really trying to figure out what it looks like on the ground for them to live out their faith. To hear the word and to do the word, both. So we have to, so we ask ourselves, if we, as, as, we're, as we've been talking about bad religion, and as we look at James, and as we think that he's writing into this, this community that's trying to figure out what good religion is, we ask ourselves a question What does good religion look like? And in these verses that we read today, here as part of James 1, we begin to see. You know, James, James does not mince words throughout the book. If you, ever, if you sit down and, and really read through the book of James, it, it's, he's a little uh, direct. Paul can be direct, but James can be direct as well. And so, so it's pretty clear. Verse 19, he tells us, okay, you need to be a listener. You need to think before you speak and you don't need to get angry easy. And that's, that's pretty clear. And it's advice that all of us could do a good job on listening to and internalizing a little better. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Man, wouldn't the church globally look a lot different? Wouldn't the world look a lot different if we were all a little quicker to listen and a little slower to speak and to get angry? Because, he tells us in verse 20, quick-tempered anger does not lead to righteousness. Those of us who, let's say, have an Irish temperament, can look to the, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple and say, see, see, there's a place for righteous anger. And maybe there is. But as I am reminded on occasion, I am not, in fact, Jesus. Quick-tempered anger doesn't lead to righteousness. It doesn't lead to the advancement of God's kingdom. Now, what we see in verse 21 is that the people of God... The people of God cast aside their longing for the dirtiness of sin and they let the Word of God settle deeply into their hearts and lives. James here is is centering the Word of God. The people of God cast aside longing for For the dirtiness of sin, and let the word of God settle deeply into their hearts and lives. But, James tells us, we don't have to just listen to the word, we don't have to just hear the word, right? He's just told us to be quick to listen. But he's saying, don't just listen. You've got to listen to the Word. You've got to let the Word of God settle deeply into your hearts and lives. And if it settles deeply, you won't simply be a hearer of the Word, but a doer of the Word. Remember the Great Commission. Go, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to what? Do all of the things that I have commanded there's hearing the Word, but as it settles into our life, there's doing the Word as well. People who who become doers of the Word, and James shows us in 23 and 24, we we don't forget our purpose, but we persevere in being obedient to the Word of God in our actions. That obedience that Jesus calls for. See, it's a blessing for the believer to live in loving faith, both in word and deed. 26 is another one of those that begins to at least step on my toes. The people of God control their tongues, and in not doing so is evidence that the person does not take their relationship with God seriously. might need to ice my toes when I get home. And then he says this, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, look after the orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. James is showing us, James is telling us that the Word of God has to, has to nest down inside of us and has to then well out of us into action. Into living out the Gospel. If we have a, a faith that doesn't result in action where we're delusional, we're self-delusional. Now, I want to be very clear here. Slipping Stumbling, backsliding, messing up occasionally doesn't mean that we have bad or ineffective religion. As we're talking about bad religion here, this doesn't mean those of us who, who slip and, and stumble and backslide and mess up. We all do that. And why do we all do that? We all do it because we're human beings. Because we're imperfect. We will all have missteps and, and faux pas in our journey as we grow in Christian maturity. No. Hmm. The scary truth is this. Bad religion isn't found in the folks who who mess up and own it. No, bad religion is more often found in those who do all of the churchy things. Who show up on Sunday morning... Who, who do their, their Sunday school material, who, whose radio in the car never leaves Caleb. All those churchy things. That's, that's sometimes where we find that bad religion. Because all of that religiousness has to be accompanied by internal change. All of that religiousness has to be accompanied by internal change that spurs us into outward action. Just as Amos said, I don't don't care about your burnt offerings. I don't care about the songs that you sing unless you're doing the right thing. God doesn't care if the radio in your car never leaves Caleb. He doesn't care if you are absolutely perfect in your church attendance on Sunday morning if the internal change hasn't happened. We we can know all the things about the Bible and still miss its transformative power and its call to love God and to love others in faithful obedience. Scripture tells us that even the demons can quote scripture even the demons can quote scripture James is, is not attempting here to summarize all of what true worship of God should involve Calvin Calvin wrote about James He's not defining generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things that he mentions is nothing. You know, religious ritual, if, if done from a reverent heart and in a worshipable spirit, is not only not wrong, it's good. And God's word can't be done until it's heard. But we can't just sit and hear and not have the Word of God spur us to action. You know, James finishes this chapter with, this, with that verse, with 27, about pure and undefiled religion. It, 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 he ends the chapter with this call for moral purity. He says that we should keep ourselves unstained from the world. Now, we can take that phrase and do some some bad things with it we can take that phrase remain unstained from the world and we can become total separatist not involved in the world at all we're going to sit over here in our holy huddle and and not let that stuff touch us well I think we know if we study the life of Jesus that's not the way of Jesus that's not what his disciples should do no, I think what James is saying here is that he's saying that we should, we should avoid thinking and acting in accordance with the value systems and the ideologies of society around us. That we need to get our, our thought process, our worldview, our ideology from, from this, from the Word of God, and not from all the stuff out there. Let's just be honest. This society reflects, by and large, beliefs and practices and thoughts that are that are unchristian and in some cases downright anti-Christian. As we live in the world, which we're called to do, we're called to live in the world. We are in a constant danger of having that muck rub off on us. We've had a a busy few days with the fire department. We had had five uh, outdoor field fires, brush fires. We had five fires in 48 hours. And let me tell you, I came home from the last one. I had my overalls on and I came in and And I was instructed not to sit on the couch. Because the ash and the soot and the stuff had rubbed off on me. It happens. But we have to be conscious of it. We have to be careful of it. We have to, to, if we name it, we can... Begin to prevent it. So what James is saying here is that the good religion of Scripture, and we saw it in Amos, and we saw it in Jeremiah, and we saw it in Luke with Jesus, the good religion of Scripture combines a purity of heart and a purity of action. A purity of action that flows from a purity of heart you know sometimes we often think that moral purity moral purity is merely acting right i'm pure because i haven't done x y and z remember the old remember the old saw: don't drink smoke or chew or go with girls who do Stay away from that fast crowd now. See, I, I've got a mother who is currently in her mid-70s. So I got a lot of the same advice that some of y'all got, even though I'm a lot younger than you. Stay away from that fast crowd. And, and we, can, we can fall into this idea that, that moral purity means acting right right it means it means not doing those things it means not running around with that with that fast crowd but what moral purity really is is that it's deeply rooted in how we shape our core convictions what are our values what are our virtues what are the what's the what's the base operating system in our lives Is it formed by Scripture? Is it formed by the Word of God? Is it based on the moral law of God's Word? Or is it is it aligned with a, a political ideology or a social hierarchy or, or a sociology class that we took in college? If how we view our... Our own morality is based on how the other guy acts. we become self-righteous. You know what this looks like, right? Well, I'm not that bad a guy. I mean, I mean, I, I took 20 bucks from the till, but the other guy took 100. I'm, I'm not that bad a guy. I mean I mean, I just look. I don't actually run around on my wife. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that bad a guy. I mean, I didn't actually shoot anybody. I just yelled at him. If our morality becomes based on what the other person is doing and not on the objective reality and truth of God's Word, we become self-righteous. There was a, a, a tweet that I saw this week from this guy Dan White. Dan White is a, um, a church consultant and goes around and, and helps um, churches do different stuff and, and think strategically and go through some of this stuff and think missionally. Dan White tweeted, I did a straw poll on my book tour. He we went to 13 cities, talked to 829 people in 2019. So he asked them a series of questions one of the things he asked him to do is he asked him to identify either as progressive or as conservative. And what he found was that 76% of those who identified as progressive see loving their enemy as complicity with injustice. So if if I'm a progressive and I say that I'm going to love my enemy, then I am being complicit in ongoing injustices in the world. But he also found that 78% of those who identified as conservative see loving their enemy as compromise with immorality. That's 75% of the people that he encountered in Christian churches who thought that loving their enemy was wrong and was bad. Because they've been influenced not by the Word of God, but by ideologies and constructs in the world around them. Brothers and sisters, loving our enemies is not an option. It is a command from our Savior to love our enemy. It's hard. It's tough. It's not easy. Man, there are people in this world that I do not want to love. If we value others based on how our social peers view them or, or on how some other group that we belong to views them or on how inconvenient or costly it is to, to help them or to meet them where they are, we forget that our allegiance is not to be first to our country or party or social group, but that our allegiance is to be to God's kingdom. I don't care what the world and its ideologies say. What I care about as a believer is what the Word of God says. In God's kingdom, all people are valued and worthy because all people carry the image of God. All people are so valued and so worthy that He gave His life for them. Yesterday was the 10-year anniversary of the raid on the compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan, that led to the death of Osama bin Laden. And I don't know if you remember 10 years ago, but there was this, this national outpouring. People ran into the streets to dance and cheer and celebrate the death of Osama bin Laden. And while I understand that his, that his death was perhaps a, a geopolitical necessity, that his capture was important, and that justice was done, it's not something that I can take joy in. No matter how much my flesh wants me to. Because here is the truth. Jesus died for Bin Laden, just as much as Jesus died for me. That's hard, isn't it? But it's true. Loving our enemies isn't easy. But like we've talked about, the Christian life isn't supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be faithful. Hearing us Hearing, excuse me, hearing the Word of God helps us to love God. Doing helps us to love and value others, regardless of how the culture around us might disagree. Coming to salvation doesn't end our spiritual journey. It merely begins it. As we draw closer to God... And by his spirit, grow in maturity. We recognize that while our relationship with God is personal, it also should needs and must spur us into action inside and outside the walls of the church. Love God, love others, and make disciples. How many of you heard as a kid do as I do and not do as I say and not as I do? We all probably got that a couple of times. But it rings kind of hollow, right? How is it that daddy can have a scoop of ice cream for a snack, but I've got to have carrots? Why can mama stay up past 8 o'clock watching TV, but I've got to go to bed and read a book? One of the things that we are learning as we work with this trainer, as we work with Deacon, one of the things that we are learning about Deacon in particular and dogs in general is they have a very strong internalized sense of fairness. And do as I say and not as I do isn't fair, is it? It points to, to a hypocrisy. Because like it or not, people evaluate us by what we do and not what we say. And so, like it or not, people are evaluating our faith and ultimately God by how we act. Remember that old that old hymn? They will know we are Christians by our love. Not they'll know our Christians by our words. They'll know, our, they'll know we are Christians by the size of our church building. Not they'll know we are Christians by, by all of the wonderful things that we say on TV or Facebook or social media or wherever else. They will know we are Christians by our love. A world that stands in desperate, desperate need of the gospel. Bob and I were talking just this morning about an ad that he saw this morning from the National Atheist Association or whatever. An ad asking for money. Send us money so we can keep God out of things. We live in a world that stands in desperate need of a gospel. And the way people are going to evaluate that gospel, evaluate our faith, and ultimately even evaluate our God is on how we act. We can preach a gospel of love and care and kindness, but if we never get out from beyond the safety of our computer screens or our tablets or our church walls or our Christian bubble, our faith seems a lot more like a social club of convenience and not something that is actually transformative and powerful. Now, we don't need to be perfect, we don't need to pretend like we're perfect. In fact, it's far better for us not to pretend like we're perfect. But our lives must be marked by more than just talk. We should be driven to action in response to God's overwhelming love for us and for others. That co-worker that you can't stand that makes your life miserable, Jesus died for them. The jerk that cut you off in traffic. The guy that was r- driving that 18-wheeler in Fayetteville on Wednesday that ran me off the interstate. Jesus died for him. The guy that held a knife on me and tried to stab me when I was in college as he robbed me to feed his crack habit. Jesus died for him. The, those men who gathered on a beach in Libya a number of years ago, 13 of them, 12 of them Christians, one of them not yet a Christian, and their captors who beheaded them Jesus died for all of them. We don't need to be perfect, but we should be driven to action in response to God's overwhelming love for us. The man or woman of God should strive to live a life based on the foundation of God's Word and spent in service to others in God's kingdom. Be hearers of the word, but not hearers only, but doers as well. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. We're going to come to the table here in a few moments. So you got, if you're here in person, you got one of these things. This is prepackaged packaged um, cup. So there is a little piece of cellophane on the top that separates, um, that, that covers up the wafer. And then there's another little pull tab that pull, will pull the foil off that will get you to the juice. So that's how you're going to open it up. We're going to come down. We're going to celebrate the table. Now, normally what we do is we pass out everything And then we take the bread, and then we pass out all of the cup, and we take the cup, but everything's come to you in one piece. So I'm going to bless the elements, and then we're going to take it together. And when that is done, Miss Becky is going to play a little bit, and we're going to have a few moments of quiet reflection as we reflect on the love of God that is shown to us in this bread and in this cup. Will you join me as we come to the Lord's table?